welcome to Agree to Disagree, where we discuss contentious issues in the world today. My name is Nico Kavonshek, and I'm your host. In this podcast, we take issues that affect Ireland, and we discuss them as people with opposing opinions. Today, we have a very special guest coming up from the north. It is Dermot Hamill here from Youth Voice Northern Ireland. Uh, he's the chief editor of that. Uh, it would call it a news agency. What would you call it, Dermot? Uh, well, we're a blog and podcast that gives young people a voice in politics across the island of Ireland. So we do articles, we record podcasts, interviews, all of that kind of stuff, and just try and push the agenda of young people. Well, gee, that's, that's good to hear. You know, unfortunately... Uh, young people have been hit especially hard during this pandemic and, you know, the voices of young people, they need to be heard. Now, we will be discussing the most pressing issue on the island collectively, and that is the question of reunification, the border poll and all this crack here. Now, where would you put yourself on the border question, Jeremy? Well, I... I suppose I'm I'm very much in favour of a United Ireland. It's always kind of been my position, no matter what. Mm. Uh, I'm definitely in favour, you know, no matter what. That's always been my position. I suppose it's when it comes to my politics, and that's my position. But whenever it comes to my journalism and all of that, you know, I'm completely impartial on it. No, oh, yeah, I completely understand. Would you call yourself a Republican? I think I would, yeah. A lot of people would ask whether I'm a nationalist, but I don't. I don't really like the term nationalist because I think it's very, I suppose, associated with the right wing. And I think that you know, whenever you said that, like it's not even just kind of centre right; it's quite far right. It's quite far right connotation. So I never really like the idea of being a nationalist. Whereas Republican is, it's that bit more, I suppose, kind of anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist rather than kind of right-wing and pro-Ireland, whereas it's more so just a rejection of colonialism. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I I would describe myself as a Republican myself. So I think we'll agree on quite a bit, but don't worry, we will disagree on a few issues, I'm sure. Uh, Now, look, we are in a position where a border poll isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When do you think a border poll should be held? Well, there are two parts to that. I suppose, I know if we call one tomorrow, we'll lose. We will lose quite seriously. We'll get smacked. And would you lose you know, in the we, north? Would you lose in the south? It would be lost in the north. I've no doubt that the south would pass it. But I think in the north, we would be quite easily beaten. I think... You know, Sinn Féin have said 10 years and that, you know, to me that seems realistic. I think there's some people are saying five, I think we'd lose in five, but I think maybe 10 years time, we could we could certainly, if we, if we knew when it was going to happen, if we said, right, in 10 years time we're getting a border poll, give us 10 years to campaign, 10 years to flesh out the details, and that's, you know, I think that's how it should work. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh- I believe Neil Richmond there of Finnegale is publishing a document on Monday. So just probably after this goes out about a roadmap there, 
for reunification on a shared island. What do you think of the whole concept of a shared island, you know, as the Taoiseach has proposed and as many figures, especially in the South, have proposed? I think, I think it's a great idea. Like, you know, the whole kind of shared island idea, I think that's important. And I think that kind of rhetoric is very good. You know, the idea of not just, a, oh, you know, because the United Ireland, to a lot of people suggest sticking on the six onto the 26 and just kind of, oh, you know, we can all just join the system and have a couple of TDs and that will be at grand. I think the idea of a shared island is mm-hmm. a lot more about unifying people rather than territory, which to me is a really great idea. I think that's, it's the idea of unifying people and not just sticking on a bit more, a couple of counties under the jurisdiction. If that's, that's, you know, that's obviously going to happen, but I think the idea of a shared island is much more people-centric and that's what we need. Mm. There was a fella there from England on the radio show. I don't know, it went viral or something. And this fella had some choice words to say about the North. You know, he, he wasn't uh, too proud of the North. He wasn't, you know, happy with its remaining part of the UK. This fellow's from England. Probably never even stepped in the North. Do you think within the wider United Kingdom, is there a general dislike of the North? I wouldn't say dislike. But it's kind of they see us as the annoying cousin that we don't really <laughs> that they don't really want, but it's like we kind of have to keep them around because it'd be bad if they got rid of us. Mm. But it's there is like they don't want us. They don't. We don't really contribute to them. We're just kind of the angry cousins that shout <laughs> and sometimes you know ended up kingmakers to their government. But usually we are just the shouty cousins that they don't want. Now, it's yeah. not just England that feels that way. It's, you know, it, it seems that there is a bit of that feeling in, in the South, which you know, is, I find more frustrating than the kind of, if the English don't like us, you know, it's okay, fine. But whenever it's, you know, whenever it's Ireland, that's whenever it starts to annoy me. Mm. Look, I, I've personally never seen that sort of thing here in the Republic, but sure, I live in a border area, you know, I've, the North is a part of the, the daily life of people here. So I've never experienced that, but, you know, I've heard of it happening. But look, the reality is the North is a significant financial drain on the UK. And in the case of reunification, do you think it will remain an economic drain on the Republic? I think you would have to, if if it was remaining the way it was now, then yes, no doubt. If it was going to be the same kind of Northern Ireland economy, then yes, but it's going to be different because you also have to remember that a lot of Northern Irish, Northern Irish businesses will move to the South or foreign businesses won't come to the North when they can go to the South where there's lower corporate tax, there's more tax loopholes. It's, you know, you've got better access to the EU, you've got better trading relationships. Whereas now in, with the North having a special relationship with both the EU and the UK, the North should be in a position to start becoming an economic powerhouse. The problem is the North doesn't have control over its own economy. So what you're left with is a situation where the North, with the North being the kind of the, the annoying shouty cousin, England doesn't really focus on the Northern economy and making sure that Northern Ireland works. Whereas if we had control over, over, our, over our own economic affairs and we were able to compete with the rest of the country, then I don't see why the 
the northern economy wouldn't improve. Right, but the north does have a bit of say over its own affairs, economically speaking. Sure, Stormont has significant powers, you know, on on the economy there. You know, I, I understand they can't set their own welfare rates or, you know, tax rates or anything of the sort, but they can encourage certain businesses. They can, you know, encourage local enterprises. So why can't this power at the moment be used to bring the North in line with the Republic? Well, I suppose, yes, there was initially a plan. I believe it was the Fresh Start Agreement that would devolve control of corporation tax to the North. Now, there was a plan to have corporation tax lowered to the same level as the South in order to allow competition. But as a result of the executive collapse, everything was put on standby. It never happened, so we didn't meet the deadline, so it's not happening now. Now, hopefully it will happen to allow us to kind of get control of our own economy. Mm. So that happens, so that kind of stalled the ball on corporate tax. But you also have the fact that you can't control your own income taxes. So, you know, the North's economy isn't the same as that of England. That's but fair, if, you, but if you're look, modeling the North your tax, also has control over its own education system, yeah. and look, the education system, it plays a very important part in the economy, and sure, even the uh, the Department of for the economy up there has said that the skill level of the workforce in the North is a bit lacking compared to even you know Great Britain or the Republic. So why isn't Stormont trying to? you know, fix these imbalances. Well, there is, you know, you also have to remember who's in control of the education <laughs> department and the economy department. You've got, Peter, you've got Peter Weir of the Democratic Unionist Party, who I am constantly clashing with because of his incompetence, his ineptitude. You know, I, I don't get a control. I don't get control over that. My vote, my constituency doesn't because of the mandatory coalition, because of the relation, you know, the nature of Northern Irish politics. Yeah. You've also got Diane Dodds in the economy department another inept, incompetent minister who has a lot of hatred for Western Northern Ireland. So, you know, the whole idea that was set out in, I believe, New Decade, New Approach, that Derry would get a full university, she says no because she doesn't like Derry. That has always been the way with the Democratic Unionist Party. They don't like moving forward. So... There's, you know, if I, if I get control of the education system, I'm going to work wonders. Like, I am going to rip the thing apart because I think there's so much to be done. Because a lot of people, a large part of the unskilled workforce is also down to the fact that those who do have a good secondary level education, you know, I come from, I go to a fairly good school. So a lot of people will just move to England, you know, go to university in England or Scotland or Wales or even in the Republic. Like, I'm hoping to tr- study in Trinity. You know, well, myself. Best of luck. Best of luck. And I mean, a lot of people will, they don't come back from university because you can, you know, I come from a segregated school. So you, a lot of people are in the same boat as me where they'll go to university. They'll realize, oh, wow, there's a whole world out here where everybody is kind of just the same instead of being segregated and torn apart. So you look at that, people go across there. And why would you come back whenever you've got a sprawling metropolis like London or even, you know, Glasgow, not really Glasgow, it's not great, but <laughs> Edinburgh or even bits of Cardiff or even Dublin or Paris or Germany or, you know, you go to America, like you've got all of these sprawling, brilliant places to live, whereas Belfast just hasn't competed largely because of 
the impact of colonialism, the impact of loss of industry, such as, you know, shipping. Like Belfast was an economic powerhouse at one point, but as a result of the political situation and, you know, the collapse of shipyards in Lenin, it, you know, it just doesn't work anymore. German, that's all well and good saying, look, it, it just doesn't work. But the reality is, in the case of reunification, the Republic is going to have a massive bill to pay for the North. Currently, there is a deficit of £9.4 billion coming just from the North. And, you know, the Republic is going to have to pay for that. That's nearly 50% of the current budget. It's absolutely ridiculous. And how can the Republic even consider, you know, getting the North if the North is such an economic drain? Well, you also have to consider that the North doesn't have control over its own economic affairs. So our economic model is largely based off of England, which is not really fair because we're nothing like England, whereas we're a lot closer to our southern relatives. So the North takes control of its own economy, brings its corporate tax down, and why wouldn't other countries flock to, or not other countries, sorry, other companies like EY, whenever Martin McGuinness and Peter Robinson were in control, set up student graduate programs over here. There are plenty of companies that would come over if we had the tax loopholes that the South had, if we had the corporate tax, if we had it so that, you know, companies could basically rip the country apart. But, you know, we don't have that system until that point comes where we do have all of that kind of financial and economic, I suppose, self-determination, then that won't happen. I, I get what you mean there, but at the same time, in the short term, let's say the, you know, a 32-county republic was formed tomorrow, you know, that republic would be paying that $9.4 billion yearly. Actually, you know, it wouldn't. Who would? Under the Sunningdale Agreement, there would be a transition period in which England would continue to, England and the rest of the United Kingdom would continue to pay for some of the North's affairs, and there would be eventually a transition period of, I believe, 23 years, where we would have a transition from, you know, complete sovereignty in the UK to complete economic and complete control from the Republic of Ireland. So there would be a transition period of 23 years, which is a fairly long time. That's ex- that's the existence of Stormont there. Mm. So you've got a transition period where we have, we've got 23 years, really, to sort out the North's economy, which is, you know, that's a fairly long time. Like, it was easily done like that in Germany at different points. You, know, you can easily do that in 23 years. But that brings up a very interesting point where, look, would you trust Boris Johnson to stand by that and spend $9.4 billion on the North for 23 years? You know... Yeah, but Boris Johnson's not going to be wrong in the North oh, in 23 years. Yeah, He's well, planning well, to resign. Well, well aware and of that, but you've also you also have to remember, Nico, that you know you've got all of these countries have guaranteed this. Like you, the EU has guaranteed this, the United States have guaranteed this. This, like the Good Friday Agreement, was one of the EU's biggest achievements. It was one of their earliest biggest achievements. Was and it's a fantastic achievement. There's no denying that. But it's know, international law. Like they would be threatening to break massive agreements with both the United, the European Union, and the United States. Like there's no way the the UK is going to say but no to that whenever they've the sixth largest broken economy. international agreement. Yes, but not done this. it. Yes, and they came back on it. 
Like that's a there's a big difference between the internal market bill, which they went back on whenever they got a proper Brexit deal, and what and the Sunning Deal Agreement and the Good Friday Agreement, that's peace that they're threatening. They're not gonna go back on that. I one hundred percent trust the English to do that because they will be held to account in the international stage. Well, I, I hope you're right. I really do. Cause otherwise we'll be left with nine point four billion uh, pounds a bill. And, you know, that would mean an increase in taxes. But if everything works out, like you said, 23-year transition period or however long it is, then we need to address the other elephant in the room, and that is the loyalist community. And unfortunately, as we've seen in the past few weeks, the loyalist community is fearful. They are fearful of the current political situation, and they're fearful of the future. How can we reassure loyalists and the unionist communities um, that their rights and their, you know, traditions will be respected in a new country, whatever that may be? Well, I think, well, part of that is, I suppose I was actually thinking about this today because I think it was addressed on the Claire Burns show is the you know the idea of their traditions being respected so they aren't like even look at the Irish tricolor like that is a massive recognition of the loyalist community or the unionist community and the orange community so you know that's something that's there but the idea there's a lot of people who say oh well a lot of loyalists wouldn't want you know say around the vein as the national anthem or uh, the tricolor to be the flag, and that's something that you know. If if they want to scrap that, then let's scrap it. I'm totally okay with that. You know, like I mean, there's some people said we could have Ireland's call as the national anthem. I'm opposed to that because it's not really a great song. It's really that no, no. Like, but if we want to get, if, like, if it's a case of accommodating culture, then let's we can do that. We can do what we do now, where there is agreements put in place. So that their cult, that their culture is respected, so that we have we talk. Let's talk about the flag. Let's talk with their communities. But from my experience, that that's not, those aren't the biggest issues. Like whenever I talk to unionists, you know, a lot of them quite pragmatic people. Their their biggest issues are well, what's my healthcare going to look like? And that is something where we would have to say, right, we're going to have to set up an all Ireland healthcare system. There's a lot of people mm-hmm. saying, well, what about the education system where we're unhappy with it in the South because it's got a two-tier system? So that would have to be addressed. Like, I don't really think that it's cultural issues that are really the big problems from my experience in speaking to unionists. Like, whenever you look at what's happening in Belfast, a lot of that is recreational rat and as evidence, I believe it was the BBC, a BBC reporter who, when asking a lot, uh, rioter why he was rat, it was because Bobby Story wasn't arrested. You know, Bobby Story's been dead nine months. Like Jesus. these yeah. are like the, those riots. They're not as a result. There are largely as a result of political tensions. But young lads are nine and ten and twelve aren't going out there because they're annoyed over a trade deal. This they is, don't care about the DUP. You know they don't like, care what Arlene Foster says. They're just out there to throw a few bricks, break a few windows, and have a bit of crack in their eyes. No, I I completely know what you mean. But you know there is a lot of fear. Here in the Republic, especially, that loyalist community will just never accept anything. That they'll just flatly refuse any offer of reconciliation that we make them. And, you know, we can offer them the 
the moon and the sky, you know, we can offer them practically everything and they'll just keep saying no. How do you think we can address that? Just flat out refuse well, them to I mean, speak? if it is going to be a case where they're going to refuse everything, you have to remember that that is a case of democracy. So at what point do we say, well, democracy has prevailed here? If we vote and we vote in, you know, six weeks' time, and we go to the polls, and there is a, I don't know, we'll say 60% majority in favour of United Ireland. That's, you know, obviously that's not going to happen in six weeks, <laughs> as much as I'd love it to. But say hypothetically that happens, and we go to the negotiations table, we talk to every loyalist in the country, we talk to every group, we talk to, you know, paramilitaries, we talk to political parties, we talk to community groups, we talk to everybody. And there are still sections of the community that say, no, we will not accept this result. Well, you have to remember, we, you know, we will still continue to do what we can to accommodate them. That has to be done. And I wouldn't want them to be, to feel like they couldn't be comfortable in that, in that Ireland. You know, there would be yeah. a lot of people who say, okay, my, I don't know that I'll be able to identify the British. Will we ensure that there are deals so that for a certain amount of generations that they continue to have British, you know, citizenship? So, as you know, like under the Good Friday Agreement. But you can also continue, like, you also have to remember that they are people who aren't going to accept it at all. They will not accept democracy. And that's not a case of what can we do. That's a case of, well, if they will not accept democracy, well, you know, there's nothing we can do there. And that isn't, that is a section of the community that will never, ever be convinced, no matter what, no matter it's a 99% majority. Look, if they're not convinced, you can't really. You know, send in the army, as some people here suggest for every single issue. <laughs> you know, you, you can't really convince them with a force of arms either. So it, it does create an interesting conundrum where no matter what you do, their communities can flat out refuse everything. So I fully agree with you that there is no, no real way to deal with it except to say, look, that's democracy, you know. So, in the case of a border poll passing, do you think we should have the planning done beforehand or should we do it after it? Absolutely, it has to be beforehand. Like, let's, let's look at Brexit. Let's look at the fiasco I'd rather not. Brexit. I'd, I'd rather not look at Brexit, <laughs> but go on. That's how you ruin a dinner party. But, <laughs> like, Brexit is the biggest fiasco in my lifetime when it comes to anything internationally yeah. it was the biggest mess i've ever seen you know we've been at this years now and it's still not sorted out i think like there's a lot of people saying that it's that it's only just beginning and i dread that thought because i'm so sick of hearing about brexit but mm. if we if we don't get a, some form of deal or some form of at least plan or framework sort of beforehand that we will have our Brexit moment and we will be at this for years. We will be fighting over every years. little detail. Oh gosh, don't say that. <laughs> we will be at this forever. We'll be at the negotiation table forever yeah. fighting over every last detail. Whereas if we can if we can at least provide a framework now, if we can at least say, right, this is what we would like then we can vote on that. Like it, In the same way that Brexit meant something different to every single voter, United Ireland means something different to every single voter. There will be people who see United Ireland as the possibility of a federal Ireland. There will be people who see United Ireland as a, 
you know, there'll probably be at least one person out there voting for a fascist United Ireland or a communist United Ireland or a United Someone Ireland. Someone call up the National Party. Yeah. They'll give you that would, You know, you, you, a United Ireland, if we don't have a framework at least yeah. or a deal or some kind of, you know, we know what we're voting for, it will mean something different to every single voter and we will end up with a mess where even after we get a deal, everyone will be saying, well, that's not the United Ireland I voted for. I mm. voted for this United Ireland. You know, the how communists, so the communists and the oh. fascists will be raging whenever they, whenever they <laughs> vote for United Ireland and they don't get their communist or fascist United Ireland. Well, how do you feel about the proposals made there by Neil Richmond? He's got some plenty of great proposals. You know, I'm not shilling for him or anything, but got plenty of great proposals there. Uh, his proposal to hold citizen assemblies to discuss what, you know, a United Ireland should look like? Well, I, you know, I haven't gotten to look in depth on it yet. I not did. published, yeah. No, yeah, I, you know, we haven't obviously gotten a chance to have a look. But the idea of a citizens' assembly, kind of, that's that's great. It's advancing the conversation. That's what I'm all about. You know, that's something that you know, even at Youth Voice, we're all about having the, the tough dis- discussions. I, you know, it's sensitive. Ian Ed Ireland is sensitive, and I'm always been someone who believes that if something is sensitive, we talk about it and talk about it and talk about it until it is so desensitize that it's such normal conversation so for having said it you know citizens assemblies and you know there's groups out there now like the the whole new ireland forum things brilliant on the shared island unit and there's groups you know civic groups like ireland's future and i know the trade unions have done things like all of these groups and getting you know citizens assemblies people to discuss what it's going to look like that is what is key it's all of us getting together saying right this is what i'd like this is what you'd like let's find a compromise this is what you want well i want something different but how about we try and work out what we'd like so we know whenever it comes to the border pool because the border pool's coming even gregory campbell agreed that with me and gregory campbell's a no name never unionist he agreed it's going to come at some point whether it's five years or 25 but if we know kind of what we're voting for it will make the whole process so much easier so much better and so much more successful whether it's won or lost mm. I want to ask you about a few controversial things now more controversial than this whole issue and you know on Twitter especially the rhetoric surrounding a United Ireland can be a bit harsh at times for example you know Rolison Uchtaron published a photo there on Twitter you know with the flag and half mast for uh, his Royal Highness Prince Philip, and you know the uh, the reaction from people on Twitter was less than stellar. Especially you know people who have a tendency to vote or support Sinn Fein. Do you think that you know Sinn Fein's rhetoric is harmful to the cause of a United Ireland? You know, especially from their supporters. I think, well. Sinn Féin can't control their supporters no more than Fine Gael can control their supporters or no more than the DUP can control their supporters, especially the DUP. Like, Arlene can't even keep Sammy Wilson quiet, let alone, you know, their supporters. But, yes, some of it is harmful. I'm going to outright say that now. Some of the rhetoric is harmful. We've seen that through what's happening. You know, some of the rhetoric is not good. I think we need to be more sensitive and more careful with our language, which I think, you know, ideas like, 
you know, shared island and new island are that bit better. You know, it's less radical language. Rhetoric is very important. Rhetoric is so, so, so important. But I don't think, you know, I don't think it's just Sinn Féin, you know. Sinn Féin aren't, you know, like they cannot control their supporters to a degree in which they can say, here, take that tweet down. Well, Dermot, the issue is no other party has the same issue with toxic supporters. And I'll flatly say it. Well, I I disagree No other party has the same issue, though. Finnegill. Finnegill. I saw someone today, Finnegill had a supporter who, over conversion therapy, fought and fought and fought on a Doug Beattie thread in support of conversion therapy. Or we can see how the whole SETC coalition has come about as a result of a Fianna Fáil uh, supporter. He, his rhetoric was horrific towards conversion therapy. And he had, you know, he had, I believe, Billy Kelleher's uh, as parliamentary assistant or PRO or, you know, someone from his office replied to him and all. So I think... It's not just Sinn Féin, like even look at PBP. PBP's response to Prince Philip's death was much different. Yeah, well, it, it, it was very... It, even like, even yeah. look at Sinn Féin, Mary Lou extended her condolences. Like, that's a big deal from a party that was at one point the political wing of a paramilitary group to now extending condolences to, you know, a member of the British royalty, even though, what was it, 40 years ago, Mount Batten was blown up? That's yeah. a massive change. Like that was a big deal, and even the BBC thought it was a big deal. Right, but at the same time, their supporters are the most vocal. You know, you, you can see them on any you know thread on Twitter or Facebook criticizing Sinn Fein. You know, the issue is look, other parties have their own wee issues. You know, with supporters, but only Sinn Fein has you know so many radicalized online supporters that absolutely refuse to listen and I feel like that's an issue and I'm surprised that you think other parties have well, similar issues well, what, like there are very, there's very little Sinn Féin can do there Nico like as much as they can say no you know please don't pile on people there's very little Sinn Féin can do but Dermot they had an adult saying click here to join our online army or something like that like that is some very very harmful rhetoric like they they do have troll accounts running from you know from official uh, Sinn Fein offices. That's been confirmed. So the reality is, Sinn Fein is harmful to to United Ireland or Shared Island. Well, who's gonna, who's going to bring it about? No, because. Sinn Féin are the only, uh, like, the big three parties are Sinn Féin, Fianna Gael, and Fianna Fáil. We can agree on that, yeah? Yeah. Now, Fianna Fáil don't organise in the North, and Fianna Gael don't organise in the North. Sinn Féin are the only unite, are the only All-Ireland party that are big in both jurisdictions. You know, you have PBP, but they're a minor party in both sides of the border. <laughs> we know, don't talk about the, that. <laughs> <laughs> they're the only party that are actually bringing that are really pushing the conversation forward. They're the only party that has been pushing it forward consistently. You know, you look at John Bruton, who essentially is, you know, he, John, or he's, he's John Brutley used to be called, and he was always so against the United Yeah, but then you had fellows like Gareth Fitzgerald, who essentially set up the negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement. So, you, you know, we can both name examples there, people who might have said something stupid, but at the same time, you know, all three parties 
have a main goal of getting a United Ireland. Like they do, but Sinn Féin are the only ones who have pushed it consistently. Who have not? Who haven't been partitionist in where they gather? You know, at least Fianna, Fianna Fáil have organised a partnership with the SDLP, much to the dismay of many SDLP members. I'm sure that's only on paper. But, that, that's not even a real partnership. Yeah, be a real... but it's it's you know it's the closest either of Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil has gotten. You know, I, I know what you mean. At least time, Sinn Féin organised in the North. They have been pushing it into the public consciousness as long as they've been alive. They have always been the party that is saying, let's talk about a United Ireland. Like they were doing it before it was cool. You know, they, as much as, you know, Fianna Fáil can call themselves the Republican Party and Fianna Gael are the, are the United Ireland Party, it is Sinn Féin who have consistently pushed that message of the United Ireland. And I'm, you know, I want... Whenever it comes to the border poll, the, the campaign, I want, you know, whether it's Mary Lou, Leo Bradker, Michael Martin, or whoever's leading it at the time, you know, I'm not sure that they'll be the leaders, uh, you know, in a year's time, let alone in 10. But, you know, it, it has, there, as much as there has to be a cross party thing, because there does, it can't be one party. And I don't believe in a vanguard party. I've always been against that idea. I, I really dislike that idea. Mm-hmm. It has been Sinn Féin who have consistently, ever since, like that has always been their goal and has, has always been the goal that they have pushed and pushed and pushed was the let's get people talking about the United Ireland. Let's, let's make it happen. Whereas we haven't seen that from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil really until very recently. And even then, Micheál Martin has come out and said that it shouldn't happen. Uh, like a border pool that is in within very soon. Well, I, I don't know about that, but you well, know, I'm, I'm never really in a mood to defend me on Martin. But uh, look, with Fine Gael, for example, you had James Dillon there, leader of Fine Gael in, from 1959, I believe, and he said something to paraphrase him, you know, United Ireland is not born from the force of arms, but in the minds and the hearts of the people of Ulster. And look, all three parties have been pushing for United Ireland, and saying otherwise is, is, is a bit farcical. But we would just have to agree to disagree on that, you know, as the show goes. But there's also a few other key issues with reunification. Like, for example, you've got the cross border economy. Now, I live on the border, I, you know, I'm very much affected by the border economy and the border economy there, there are certain businesses that you know are either just slightly north of the border or slightly south of the border that depend on the border for a living essentially like for example a local business border phones they are able to you know provide uh, phones at a cheaper rate in the north for consumers coming from the south and in the case of United Ireland, unfortunately, their business is gone. You know, they won't be able to avail of the same products and the same benefits that they are able to benefit from now. And certain towns on the border are going to be hurt as a result. You know, that's not saying that they don't want a United Ireland, but they will be hurt by it. You know what I mean? How well, you- I'm, a, I'm a border boy as well. You know, I'm from South Armagh. I've grown up alongside the border, you know. I mm. I headed a dog for my Chinese takeaway because it's better than the one in any of the ones in the north. You know, there's, I've, a, there's a great one across McGlen, but <laughs> no, it was, I, I've always relied. You know, I'm I've you know my parents work in the south, whereas you know when I go to school in the north, I have people in school who 
you know, who live in the south but come to school in the north, you know, there is a yeah. there's a massive cross border relationship there. It is something that border communities like ours rely on. And that that is something that will be affected one hundred percent. Now whether it, whether or not it means that these businesses will fizzle out, I don't know. I can't, you know, that's massive speculation and it's it's something that I'm not one hundred percent sure on. Like I work in a hardware shop and we sell fuel. Now, the cross-border <laughs> fuel thing is a massive thing, as, you, as I'm sure you know. But even, you know, like, there'll be stuff brought up completely legitimately that might be, you know, like, I'm not even talking about smuggling. That's a whole different... Yeah, yeah, milk buffer and all that is cheaper in the north, you know. <laughs> At the moment, there's plenty of people who go up to the north, get their shopping done for, you know, significantly cheaper than down here. And unfortunately, they will be affected. But do you think there's anything that you know any government in the future can do for these people because you know there are certain families here who really do depend on the border for a livelihood and that sounds a bit absurd to someone who's from outside the border region but it is a real thing it's a real issue yeah i think uh, you know that will be definitely something that has to be investigated you know how is the how big you know we'll have to look at how big is the, the border economy and how many of us are crossing and what are we gaining from crossing and all of that kind of you know, there'll be so much to look at there diesel mostly, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's right up here oh, but man. you know we'll have to look at that and all of that kind of all of those issues will we have to look at and whether it's you know a case of tax or you know maybe local lower and local rates and you know we small things you know there are, you know we can look at the big radical changes we can do that but there will be smaller things that governments can do and even local authorities can do. You know, whether it's the local council making council taxes a bit cheaper. All of those wee things will make a difference. Like, it, you know, it's probably the most boring thing to think about, oh, you know, how much rates are we going to be charging in South Armagh? But those it's a very important issues. issue. Yeah. It's, they're bread and butter issues. They're, you know, they're, they're the things that you know, they don't get people excited. No one, no one gets out and radicalizes over corporate ta- or council tax. But it's the bread and butter issues that make people's lives that bit easier. Yeah. And that's you know we have to look at all of those things and how can we, you know, build up that I suppose that deficit that will be left behind by the loss of a border, and you know how can we balance that out through the investment and you know kind of that regional equality that could be born of being added out. Mm. Now. One last issue I want to discuss with you, and that is the EU. And do you think the EU can be a positive vehicle in achieving a shared slash united Ireland? Yes, I think you know that's going to be a big, that's going to be a big selling factor. As it like whenever we look at the Scottish independence referendum, one of the big factors they had thrown at them was, well, Spain won't let you into the EU, and there was that big, there was a big kind of thought of, oh well. You know, what if Scotland won't be allowed to get it back in? So then there would have been a lot of people swayed by that. But in likewise, in the North, there will be people who think, well, I like the EU. The EU is good. I like my single farm payments. I like all of these things. Mm. I can get that if I vote for United Act. So there will be people who think, yes, let's get back in the EU. Let's get back into Ireland. Let's kind of create this, you know, like, let's get back into Europe. And I think Europe will be very important for that. And there will also be, the importance of creating better relationships between the EU and UK and the UK and Northern Ireland and the UK and Ireland. Like there will be a lot of relationship building there and a lot of trade building because obviously like I'm not, I'm not an Irexit person. 
I, I'm a big believer in Ireland remaining in the EU and building a stable economy with good relationships with Europe and the UK and abroad. So I think whenever it comes to a United Ireland or a border pool, that will be a massive factor for people, especially, you know, people from agricultural backgrounds who will be thinking, well, I've just lost my single farm payment or I've lost subsidies. Like, people will be swayed by that. Those are the issues that people will be swayed by. Yeah, Yeah, like, it won't be, it won't be big cultural issues that will sway a lot of people. It will be issues like that, the small bread and butter stuff that puts, you know, that makes people's lives a bit easier and that will be what sways people. Looking at a bigger scale on the European question there, you've got the Commonwealth situation as well. Do you think that, you know, there will be a bit of tension between the Commonwealth, if Ireland joins the Commonwealth, and the EU in such a scenario. Like, do you think that Ireland will be essentially pulled between the Commonwealth and the EU? I don't think so, because there is obviously a very large British community in Northern Ireland. There's a large community, you know, I'd say, you know, you're probably talking 40% who identify as British and 40% who identify as Irish. And, you know, like I'm making up those figures. It's a complete guesstimation. (laughs) But... You know, that's there will be a large amount of people who are British, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want it any other way because they identify as British and they are British. So there is that relationship with Scotland, England, and Wales. So I don't, you know, like the Commonwealth is practically just an abstract idea at this point. You know, it's not like they've come and travel, there's trade agreements and stuff, but it isn't a big real factor anymore. Like, I don't know that, that Ireland would join. You know, if it's a case of whether or not we get a United Ireland, it's like, okay, you can have one, but you have to join the Commonwealth. It's like, right, I'll take that. But I don't think that will be a big thing. Like, I just, I just, I just can't see that being a massive factor. Well, I'm asking it because recently there's been a lot of, you know, pushing from 10 Downing Street on the other Commonwealth nations to bring the Commonwealth closer together. And there's been a lot of discussion here in the Republic about joining the Commonwealth in order to achieve United Ireland, you know, as you said. So the way I see it, there might be a wee bit of conflict there between the wishes of 10 Downing Street that wants to bring the Commonwealth together, you know, on a trade level, on an immigration level, on all sorts of different initiatives, and our responsibilities with Europe. Uh, do you think 10 Downing Street will cause issues within the Commonwealth? I See, I think the Commonwealth has kind of played up a lot bigger than it is because like, you have to look at who's in it. Like, You have New Zealand, you have like, well, I'm pretty sure, uh, Canada and you have Australia. Three quite, India, Pakistan. You know, like quite large economic powerhouses. And they're, like, they're not really jumping for joy at the thoughts of you know, a united Commonwealth or you know, much stronger England like I like mm. they don't really seem interested because they have such you know they have it so much better in a lot of places like they have much stronger economies they have much better economic futures and with the wake of Brexit like the EU or, sorry not the EU the UK economy has been quite has been decimated like by Brexit and add on top of that COVID like they don't they haven't really addressed the trade problems and they haven't addressed common travel problems. So, like, if there was a common travel area between the Commonwealth, well, I'd be thinking maybe we should join just because I'd like to go see Canada someday. But it's, I, I 
don't really think that they will. Like 10 Downing Street is slowly but surely losing. You know, they're losing power. Like I think it was Colin Eastwood said in the House of Commons that the, the UK is coming to an end. And I, I'd be inclined to agree with him there. It is, the Commonwealth will have, I believe it will eventually dissipate. You know, I don't think it'll be, you know, we'll wake up one morning and it'll just say the Commonwealth is over. Like, I don't think there's going to be a big game over sign on Sky News. But yeah. I think we will, we'll, it, it's just going to eventually win. It's going to lose. It's kind of like the UK is dying. It's hemorrhaging. Like, Scotland wants to leave. There's no, there's no an appetite for Welsh independence, which isn't something I ever thought I'd say. You know, Northern Ireland is getting quite close to maybe saying, right, right lads, let's head on. Mm. Like, it's, it's not really, I, I just can't see that being a massive issue. Well, I don't know about Wales being independent now. That's, <laughs> that's a bit of a stretch. But it, look, there's one, one more issue that I completely forgot about, which I really shouldn't have. And that is the issue of paramilitary groups on both the Republican side and on the Unionist side in the case of a shirt slash United Ireland. Now, look, after the Good Friday Agreement, it was said that the provost were decommissioned and all that. But even as Jerry said himself a few years later, they haven't gone away, you know. So in the case of United Ireland, specifically looking at the Republican paramilitary groups, you've got the new IRA, you've got Jesus, Republican Action Against Drugs, you've got plenty of others. Do you think these groups will go away? Well, on the Republican side, like... You have to remember, now I'm not going to name names for defamation reasons and all of that. Like the provost, well, I can say the provost, the provost have, you know, they haven't gone away, as Jerry said, but they have, you know, they've decommissioned. They have, you know, put the guns down. They have, I believe it was a, it was a, it wasn't, I believe it was a PSNI report came out and said that they are committed to completely peaceful and political means. So that was, you know, that's fine. That, you know, there's probably still structures there somewhere, you know, complete grandas in a shed deciding on, you know, who's going to run. But I don't think, you know, I think the Republican, you know, the provosts are kind of dealt with. There are other groups out there who have, you know, obviously links to drug dealing, who have links to criminal. Like, I don't think there'll be paramilitary groups anymore, so to mm. speak. I think they will just kind of come into their own as their own wee kind of criminal gangs, which is all I really see them as. Like, I wouldn't even give them the respect of considering them a political yeah. organization. But I see them as drug dealers. Like, that, that's I think what a lot of people are worried about. And the fact is, you know, these, these groups aren't about politics. Like, they, they just aren't, you know. The, the unionist groups aren't about politics. The Republican groups aren't about politics. They are about power. Power within communities. And, you know, I fear, in the case of United Ireland, you've got these... Uh, dissident Republican groups that won't give up. They'll come up with some sort of reason to keep fighting, you know, and maintain their power. And I don't think that the Gardaí is necessarily equipped for that scenario. Do you well, know what I mean? They haven't, I suppose, you were looking at, you know, the idea that they haven't gone away, but that's all they really are now anyway. Like, they are just kind of these groups of granddads who have you know, who are getting young people to deal drugs for them in the same way that you have the problems in Drogheda and you would have had them in Limerick and you have them in Dublin. You know, they're just other criminal gangs in this, you know, they're nothing, they're not really anymore. Like they're not, 
they're not like the provos who were blowing people up, you know, left, right, and centre. They are. They still use, you know, the old provo methods of IEDs yeah, and all. But they're, they're they're not, you know, they're not to the same extent. They're not like they they yeah. are, you know, they're not a drop in the water. You know, they're nothing compared to the you know the structure and the size and the support of the provisional IRA or even of the way the UDA and UVF would have been. They're nothing. Yeah, they're just basically criminal gangs who fly a flag. Like they're nothing more. They are, you know, they will. They're not going to stop. They're just going to basically continue to be the criminal gangs that they are. But I can't really see, you know, political change really doing much to them. They'll just be like, oh well, we're not going to fly a flag anymore. We're just going to deal drugs because you know we can. Like that's all they'll be. They'll continue to be the drug dealers that they are. Mm. And eventually they will. You know, you also have to remember that in the north we have. I suppose the idea of funding paramilitaries. So you know, we we they get paid to transition from paramilitary groups into community groups and all of that. You know, community workers. That's that a will, bit ridiculous, to be fair. Oh, I, mean. I know. Believe me, up and it drives me mental. But you know, it has worked in some cases, but it often doesn't. Like that mm. will eventually they'll stop getting money from the government to become community workers. And I say that, you know, in inverted commas, uh, but. <laughs> You know, they'll, mm. they'll, they'll eventually just dissipate, I think. They will just, you know, they'll either, they'll eventually get wiped out in the same way that criminal gangs eventually do. Yeah. You know, like, the same way, you know, eventually the criminal gangs in Dublin will be dealt with. They'll be just be dealt with the same way. Only, you know, the PSNI will probably be that bit more ruthless about it. Hopefully. Mm. Let's hope so. Uh, but, look, it was lovely chatting with you today, Dermot. You know, there's... A lot of things we agree on, but, you know, as was demonstrated today, there's a lot of things we do disagree on, you know, especially surrounding the cost of a united Ireland. So it's very good talking with you today, and it's quite important that we do have these conversations now, and they are quite in-depth, and they are serious conversations about the future of our island. Don't you agree? Absolutely, and obviously, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's definitely great to be here, and it's I think it is great to have shows like this where we do discuss the sensitive issues and we do tackle all of, all of those kind of issues surrounding you know the future and the past and whatever else. All right. Well, thank you for thank you for coming along. I'll see you all next week.